Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Bryce Hoffman. Bryce, welcome. Hello, Amy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, Marcus was just saying you have to have Bryce on. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Happy to be here. Fantastic. So the, my first question is the same. I ask everybody this question. What is it you're doing at the moment? What am I doing at the moment? Well, I am president of Red Team Thinking, which is a global company that teaches individuals and organizations how to engage critical thinking how to enable distributed decision-making, how to encourage diversity of thought so that they can better navigate today's complex world. I'm also working on my third book, uh, the Red Team Thinking Field Manual. Uh, and I am doing my best to, uh, to uh, keep a smile on my face in a very crazy world we live in today. It is indeed. Which is a challenge. <laughs> It is a challenge, but is this not what red teaming is designed to face? Absolutely. I mean, this is red team thinking was created to deal with what we call the VUCA world. VUCA is a term that stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We add an H to the end of it for hyperconnectivity nowadays, because that's the other thing that characterizes the world today. And red team thinking was really created to give people a, a mindset and a set of tools that they can use to navigate this world. So absolutely. But the real aim of what we do, Amy, is to try to help people reclaim their natural role as thinkers, because too many of us have abdicated our thinking to other people to, to we, we stop fighting with our boss because, you know, he or she doesn't want to hear what we have to say and we just go along to get along or we just believe whatever our chosen news outlet tells us or we just are too nose to the grindstone to, to be able to take a step back, take a deep breath and think about what the best course of action is for the problem we're trying to solve. And so it's frustrating, even though we are confident that we have these tools and techniques to help people do these things, it's, it's frustrating to see so little thinking going on in the world where you see governments just basically failing their people all over the globe because it's politically hard to make the tough decisions that are required to deal with the global pandemic for instance or you see you know the 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 consequences of countries where a a single leader is unquestioned and allowed to pursue whatever course of action he deems appropriate without anyone challenging him and without anyone, you know, saying, you know, this can't work, we should rethink this. So there's a lot, there, there, there's 
a dearth of le- of thinking in the world today. And so even though we're trying to fix that, it's frustrating to see the consequences of what happens when people just, you know, act rather than think. And when does this abdication of thinking occur? That's a great question because, you know, if you think about it, Amy, we're born as thinkers. I mean, that's why I, why I say reclaiming the role of natural thinker. When you're a child, your favorite question is why? You're always asking why, why, why? There's a technique that I, that I describe in my book, in fact, called Five Whys, and it was developed by Toyota um, back in, in the, uh, before they even made automobiles, back in the 1920s, 1930s. And it's a very powerful tool for getting to the root causes of problems. And when my editor at Random House was uh, looking at the, that chapter when I sent it in, he said, oh my gosh, you, this is, my kids do this all the, all the time. They, they, they've already mastered this technique, except it's not five wise with them, it's 50. And, and that's, that's an important truth, Amy, because we're born with this natural curiosity. We're born with this desire to solve problems. We're born with this desire to figure things out. We want to know what's really going on. We want to choose the best course of action. And yet, as we go through life, we, we, we find ourselves in organizations and hierarchies where thinking is discouraged, where groupthink is the norm, where internal politics force us to, to do things we know aren't right, aren't going to work, but we can't question. And we also are bombarded by these, these incredibly shrill voices telling us what to think outside of work. So, you know, news in much of the Western world, at least, has become so loud, so shrill. I and mean, this is from both the left and the right, that people are just kind of so overwhelmed by a single message. And it's a very different thing. Social media, by the way, has turned this, the volume up on all this to 11. I mean, we know for a fact uh, that the algorithms that companies like Facebook have developed are designed to feed people stuff that just confirms what they already think and then amps that up constantly so that it actually encourages people to stop thinking. And this is this is not a conspiracy theory or anything. There's a lot of scientists who've, who've written some very you know, powerful studies about this. Um, and if any of your listeners haven't seen the excellent documentary, The Social Network, uh, I highly encourage you to look at it because it's, it's actually interviews with some of the founders of companies like Facebook and stuff where they say flat out, this is what we set out to do. And so that kind of beats this out of us. And it's not how things used to be. You know, this is the thing is, I think back, my grandfather, who I was very close to growing up, he wasn't college educated. He had a high school degree, was, was, a, was a, a manager for the railroad. And yet he read two newspapers every day, a Republican newspaper and a Democratic newspaper. He read both of them every day. And not only, and so did my grandmother, and not only did they read them, but over breakfast every day, they would discuss news stories. And they did this because in that era, and I'm, I'm speaking now of like the 1970s, their generation, though, who are already older in that era, they viewed it as their responsibility as citizens of a modern democracy to be informed and to think, to actually think deeply about the problems of the day and to form their own opinion, to consider both sides. 
We don't do that anymore. And that's, I think we've really lost something in that process. And you talk about the social network and actually having watched that myself, it terrifying some of the elements. Yeah. And what those founders were describing, a lot of them have actually left social media and refuse their children to be on social media because the the intentions and the algorithms that they set up were such that it was a business. It was mm-hmm. not, and, and it was also based on the the gambling fallacy. What is it? Is that is that that click that you need to click all the time to yep. go through that 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 requirement of playing on the psychology of of what you've got? So. I want to ask you about the social consciousness and the responsibility that you have with red team thinking. Well, I, I think what we're trying to do is, is like I say, is give people tools and techniques that they can use to deal with the complexity that exists in the world and to start thinking again, to start thinking critically, but constructively. And the, and, and as they use these tools, as they use these t- techniques, they develop what we call a red team thinking mindset, which is a, a mindset that is always asking why just like we were when we were five years old. And by the way, this is not something that I just made up, you know, out of thin air. I, I first started thinking about this mindset in an intentional way when I was working on my fir- first book, American Icon, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company, which is about how this amazing CEO, the president of Boeing, left his job in Seattle, knowing nothing about the American automobile industry, came and took over Ford Motor Company when it was on the verge of bankruptcy, just before the global financial crisis, and managed to turn the entire company around, the only American automaker not to fail during the Great Recession, and did it without taking a government bailout. And he did this with an amazing management system, which I describe in that book, but he also did it with his own, you know, on the force of his abilities as a leader. And one of the things that I noticed, because at the time I used to be, before I did all of this, I used to be a, a business journalist. I spent 20 years as a reporter, newspaper reporter. I covered the tech boom in the 1990s in Silicon Valley. And then I covered the collapse of the American automobile industry in Detroit in the 2000s. And I spent a lot of time with, with Alan. And what I noticed early on, is that he always asked why. And, and I saw how powerful that was in a leader to be, to be doing that. And I said to myself, this guy is, I came up with the phrase in my mind, he's a constructive contrarian because it was always positive. It was never nasty. It was never what a bunch of idiots you are that I have to ask this question. It was all really sincere of help me understand why we're doing this. And in doing that, exposing the faults with plans, the problems, the missed opportunities. And I'll give you one quick example. I love this story. And I, I, when I was working on my book, I heard this story from every engineer and designer who was in the room when this happened. So Alan, as I said, President Boeing didn't know anything about the automobile industry, drove a Toyota, drove a, I mean, drove a Lexus by his own admission, had only driven Fords as rental cars. And so he comes to Detroit to take over Ford Motor Company. His first week on the job, he says, I want to see everything we make around the world. We're we're one of the biggest automakers in the world. I don't even know what we make. 
And they said, no problem, sir. We'll, we'll, we'll take the design studio. We'll, we'll bring one of every car, truck, and van we make worldwide, and we'll and you show them all to you. And he's like, great. I'm excited because he's an engineer by training. So he walked into the room, and there was you know, scores of automobiles you know, arrayed for him to look at. And he, and he looked around, and he said, where's the Ford Taurus? And uh, they said, oh, well... We, we, we killed that earlier this year. And he said, really? Because I, I, I thought the Ford Taurus was the car that, and, and not all of your listeners may be aware of this, but you know, after, after the Japanese dominated the American auto industry in the 80s, the Taurus was the first American car to become the best-selling car in America again. And it was that for many years. So he said, I thought the Taurus was, was a great success. And I've driven them and I liked them. And they said, oh, well, we killed it. He said, why'd you kill it? He said, well, because it had got long in tooth. You know, we had stopped investing in it. He said, well, why'd you stop investing in it? He said, well, you know, we, we moved on to other things. He said, why'd you move on to other things when you spent all this money building this amazing car that people loved and valued? Well, you know, uh, and, and by that point, everyone was just stammering. And then he said, you know, this is this isn't a recipe for success. When you have a successful product, you need to continue to improve it. That's just why the Japanese are so successful, is they keep improving what's already working. Why don't we do that? And and so, as one of the senior engineers told me, who was in that conversation, in less than ten minutes, this became one of the most uncomfortable conversations he'd had in his entire career. And he said he just stopped and said, "You know what?" Alan, you're absolutely right. We we have really failed in this regard, and our entire product planning process is deeply flawed. And Alan smiled and said, "That's great. Then we can we should fix it." That's the power of why. I love the story. I don't know if I answered your questions, but no, oh, I love the story. It's great, <laughs> yeah. and it, it, you know, it's you can just see this sort of dawning on everybody in the room, going, well, "This is crazy." But unless you ask the question, unless you have that investigative nature then you just don't know do you think that being a journalist first has really laid the foundation for why you ask all these questions absolutely because see i'm the kid who never stopped asking why i just figured out how to get paid to do it and and so that's 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 you you figured me out amy so i i just kept asking why and somebody gave me a notepad and a computer and uh, the rest was history but when I, when I realized how essential that was to Alan's success, I said, wow, there has to be a way to help leaders cultivate that. Because again, it's not like it's a secret power that, that only Alan had. We're all born with it. So I started looking around for approaches to try to help people develop that constructive contrarian approach. That's what led me to discover red teaming which was developed by the military and intelligence agencies after 9-11 because they realized that they had not thought very clearly about the problems the U.S. was facing there. And they had, in the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, had made colossal mistakes that were due to not thinking the problem through and thinking about, thinking about it from all sides, like, say, the side of the Iraqi people. And so they developed red teaming as a methodology to to help leaders, help organizations think more three-dimensionally about problems, to challenge their own assumptions, to look at problems from other perspectives 
so that they could make the best decision possible and avoid mistakes like this in the future. And so when I discovered that, I said businesses could really benefit from this as well. So I, I called up the Pentagon and asked if I could audit their, their course. They had a course for senior officers on this. And uh, it took six months of, of, of knocking on the door, but they finally let me in. I became the only civilian from outside government to, to uh, graduate from the U.S. Army's Red Team Leader course. And, um, and then I, my book, Red Teaming, was an attempt to port these ideas to business. But when I ported them to business, I quickly realized that this formal process that the military had developed was, was very cumbersome. And so that's why I, with the help of Marcus, evolved this into to red team thinking, which is lighter, nimbler, easier to use, doesn't require this whole team of people and stuff, and that anyone could use at any level of an organization to reclaim the role of thinker, to think more deeply and more critically about the problems that they're facing to make better decisions faster in the complex world that we all live in today. And I can't help but think, what if you don't have to reclaim it? What if it never goes away? What if you get in there sooner and help children understand how to think critically from a red team thinking perspective? Oh, that, 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 that's a dream. <laughs> Trust me, that's that, that's that's a dream. I, I, I fear it may be an impossible dream, uh, knowing what I know about our educational system, at least in the United States. But that would be, you know, and you know, people used to do that. I mean, you know, at least in in this country, we used to teach critical thinking, at least to college prep, you know, students, and we've stopped doing that. And and you know. Not that long ago, well, I guess maybe that long ago, a few decades ago, many colleges and universities in the United States had a course in, you know, philosophy 101 or critical thinking 101, which either whichever they called it was the same thing. It was it was basic critical thinking that every student was required to take. And we've dropped all that. And if you look, the 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 it's it's not just just me saying that this is a problem. Every year the Wall Street Journal does a survey of CEOs of the top corporations and asks, what are the skills that are most lacking in your hires these days? And consistently for, for more than a decade, the answer in the US has been basic critical thinking skills. People don't have basic critical thinking skills. If you look in the past year, McKinsey's done several studies that have identified basic critical thinking skills as the most essential skills for navigating the world that's that's emerging now with AI and with new technologies and with all this hyper-connectivity in the world. And yet these are also, they've identified the skills that HR directors have the most trouble finding in, in people. So we used to do a better job of it. It's not that hard to do. You just have to, 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 to encourage people to do it, to give them the tools to do it. The tools are simple. They're dead simple. And it's the, the problem is, is like I said, everybody knows how to do it. It's just that we're taught to stop doing it, to go along, to get along. And when you do it, that's how you end up with, with some really serious problems. So I'm not trying to do you out of a job because I think that, you know, what you're doing is fantastic for the leaders out there. But as, as we said, if you identified it sooner, and I don't know why it has been dropped from the education system, whether it's a case of encouraging the drone-like scenario that we have, the zombie element, I don't know. But it, it is a case of 
forward looking and understanding what the future needs of us today to what decisions we need to make, make today what is it that you're doing what other than with this there must be more there must be a, a purpose-driven desire that you have this is my purpose-driven desire i mean i i think this is how you change the world for the better i mean it, it is you know somebody I, I was working with an executive coach several years ago and they asked the kind of stock question you know if you if you had a billboard that you could you could write anything on everyone in the world would see it what would you write on it and my answer was real simple i'd write think one word think that's all you got to do think it's the solution to all the problems that we face the reason why we've our societies have become so divided into tr into these kind of tribalism that we see now where people are at each other's throats constantly is because people react they don't think when someone says something that they disagree with that doesn't fit into their their line online if you will or something like that instead of thinking about that other person's argument weighing its merits they simply lash out at them and then that spills over into real life and then you ultimately you know get a situation where people can't even be civil with each other in public anymore. And we see signs of that all over the place. So it's not just at a geopolitical level. It's not just at a corporate level. It's at a personal level too. So I really, th this is what I am passionate about is, is, you know, it, it, I really believe that if people simply took a deep breath and thought about whatever the problem they're dealing with is, whether it's a problem in their company, a problem with their spouse or a problem, a conflict between nations that just pausing and thinking brings the, the A brings the, the tension down dramatically, but also illuminates, you know, maybe the other person has a point, a valid point they're making. Maybe there's common ground that I'm not seeing here. And Again, this can all happen in, in a matter of a minute or something, but we don't take that time as the problem. We just react. And this is so this is one of my my big mottos is that bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. And I developed that motto. I was working um, I was in in one of Seth Godin's podcast fellowships. And we, you know, we had to come up with a tagline for our podcast. I I have a podcast too, the thinking leader. And that was the tagline that I came up with my podcast. It was really interesting to me, Amy, because, you know, we, we, I, I love Seth's learning methodology, which is that you, you learn from each other, you share your ideas and everybody comments on them, you learn from each other. And about two thirds of the people in my class, you know, sent me messages saying, oh, I love that, that tagline, you know, it gave me chills. That's so true. You know, like I can't, oh, you, you got to copyright that first message I got, somebody said, you got to copyright that because it's so powerful. But about a third of the people in my class sent me messages saying, oh, you can't say that. There's no such thing as bad leaders. And my response was, well, actually there is. In fact, in fact, it's probably more than 50% of them easily. There are bad leaders. And if we lie to ourselves and say, oh, you know, every, everybody's a winner or everybody is a, is a good leader, then we're, then we're not thinking critically about the fact that the world is full, full of bad leaders who've gotten into their position, you know, not because of their skills as leaders, not because of their decision-making abilities, but because of their skills at navigating the internal politics of the organization that they are part of. 
And those are the leaders that, that wreak havoc on their companies, on their organizations, and ultimately on the world. And, you know, you know the Uber example right now, that is Vladimir Putin. You know, here is a guy who was a, a young KGB operative who cleverly and craftily navigated his way up to a senior position. And then when the, the, the Soviet Union fell apart and the KGB collapsed, managed to jump from from one burning platform to another and and do the same thing in the new Russia. And now here he is today with, according to the latest reports of Western intelligence agencies, unchallenged by, un, unchallenged by his military leaders because they can't challenge him, because they're terrified to challenge him. And, you know, that's how you end up with a crisis like the one we're dealing with right now. And you mentioned earlier about go along or get along with people. And it is that fitting in, that desire to be, have a sense of belongingness. And you you said that immediately some, a third of the people said, oh, you can't say that because of that. Then alienating yourself essentially from, from what the majority were, were wanting you to do, which was sort of just get along and go along with, with the others. What does it mean for you to stand out? It's not standing out for the sake of standing out. It's standing up for the truth. And that's that's the thing. This is you know the the one thing I have have never been able to do uh, in my life is 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 I'm trying to think of a polite way to say it is it, 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 it is BS people you know I, I I you know or to 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 go along with something that is obviously wrong uh, because that's what the powers that be have determined. And, you know, I have a really hard time and I've always had a really hard time since I was a kid of, of not calling BS on stuff. I think that's why I was a good journalist. You go into a company and they've got an entire phalanx of press people that are trying to convince you that something is true or to write a particular thing. And, and I, would, I would be the person who would say, you know, prove it to me. And, and then when they couldn't, I'd say, well, then I'm not going to write that, you know, and, and they, you know, take you out to nice dinners and, and do all this sorts of thing to try to, to sway you to their point of view. But, you know, I really believe that the, that telling the truth is, is the ultimate job of a journalist, even if that truth is very uncomfortable, even if that truth is, is problematic, especially if that truth is problematic. See, the, the problem, Amy, is, and this also goes into why I started Red Team Thinking, is, and, and there's really no polite way to say this. I, I think every organization creates a fog of BS around it, unintentionally often. And, 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 and it does this because we, we all, even the best organizations, by the way, even on my organization, because, because we, do the, we, we tell ourselves comforting lies because they protect us, they insulate us, from truths that are either too hard to confront or too difficult to address. But the problem is that confronting those truths, addressing those truths are how we move forward as individuals and organizations. And I'll give you another powerful Ford example from before Alan was CEO of Ford, back at the, the, turn, of the turn of the century, turn of the last century, turn of this century, 20, 20th to 21st, uh, CEO of Ford was, was Jack Nasser, who was considered when he became CEO of Ford to be a real rock star. And he was a disciple of Jack Welch, which should tell you a lot right there. And people had really high hopes for Jack. And 
Jack, at the time, Ford had so much money, it was just like coming out of the safe. Because for the entire latter half of the 1990s, Americans have been buying big trucks and SUVs like they were going out of style, which in fact they were. Um, and Ford was the leading producer of them. And the, and the margins on those vehicles were astronomical. They were so profitable, Amy, I kid you not, that when Ford ran out of like parts for pickups and SUVs in those days, they would, rather than putting them on a truck and driving them 10 miles down the road to the factory, they'd, put them on, they'd send them by helicopter because the, the, the 20 minutes that saved was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit to the company. So they had tons of money. And Jack came in and people had such high hopes from all the, all the analysts, all the pundits wrote these stories and, and made these proclamations that Jack's going to finally solve all of Ford's problems. Ford's been struggling for decades since the Japanese came. And now it's got all this money. It's got this great leader. It's going to solve its problems. And Jack announced that that's exactly what he was going to do. He was going to seize the day and solve Ford's decades-long problems. And then he looked at what those problems were. And it's kind of like the analogy I used is he opened the, the bonnet on the, on, the, on the car and looked at what a mess the engine was, and he just slammed it shut. And he said, you know what? We've got all this money, and the tech industry is booming in Silicon Valley. I'm going to start buying tech companies. And he, he went out to California. He started buying tech companies and started setting up all sorts of ancillary businesses that had nothing to do with fixing Ford's core problems because he couldn't confront the hard truth that the company had way too many factory workers in the U.S., way too many factories. It was still set up to produce the same number of vehicles that had been producing 20 years before when the Jap before the Japanese came and took half of its market share away. It had an a non-functioning global organization. Each of the parts of the company were at war with each other. Ford of Europe, Ford of the UK were at war with each other. Ford of Europe was at war with Ford of the US. And he looked at all these problems and he and he, rather than confronting those hard truths, he told the lie that the future of Ford was to get into these, uh, diversify into these other areas. That's just one example. And as a result, despite having had all of this money within, literally within less than, than half a decade of him coming in to do this, the company was screening towards bankruptcy. Yeah. I've just, I'm just trying to think of, of how what you just shared now and talking about these comforting lies that we tell ourselves to protect ourselves from confronting the truth as you as you describe it what have been the lies that you have told yourself that have you've had to confront so i l let me start with the industry i used to work in cuz that's where i first kind of realized this <clears throat> so um I became a journalist because I thought that, you know, the truth would, would set you free, you know, type of thing that, you know, uh, that, that by shining a light onto, onto serious issues and problems in society would compel people to, to solve those problems. And I, it only took me a few years to learn that that wasn't true, that people could be entirely, completely aware of problems and still do nothing to solve them because they're hard for the reason we just talked about, or because there's entrenched interest often that, that are benefiting from things being dysfunctional. Um, you know, you take a, a major city like Detroit in the United States, which is just 
for decades been a train wreck of a city. It's, it's not because people don't know what the problems are or even how to solve them. It's because there's a political group that has been in power there because of the, the you know, that, 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 that stays in power because it's dysfunctional. And if the city became functional, their power base would be threatened. So that's just, you know, an example. So I, I lied to myself, I think, for a while after I realized that. That, that that was still what I was doing for a living because I, I I wanted to believe that what I was doing, you know, had meaning and had value. And ultimately, why why I left journalism is because I realized it, that it didn't it wasn't doing the thing that I thought it was. The companies I was working for, the newspapers, the big the big national newspaper chains I was working for, told themselves lies through this whole time that I initially believed, and the biggest lie that we told ourselves was that what we produced, the product we produced, was as essential to the citizens of a of a modern democracy as groceries. But, and it goes back to what I said. And I believe that because I'd seen my grandfather and my grandmother, you know, live that, that 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 we produced this every day, this this in this little package, you got in-depth analysis of all the important events going on in your world so that you could weigh it and make a informed decision. And I realized, I realized before my employers realized that that wasn't true, that people really didn't care to be informed anymore. Um, you know, they, 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 I, I remember a fight at one paper that I worked at in San Francisco Bay area in the late 1990s, because the paper had started employing a polling agency. So they, you know, because they were losing readers because people didn't value what we did as much as they valued groceries, apparently. Um, but the the so the paper paper wasn't going to go down without a fight. So they they employed a polling agency to every day call a, a a you know random set of our subscribers and give them choices about what should be on the front page of the paper. It was about you know getting the reader's voice. And I, I will never forget, we had a major, a major expose that I had written on police suicides. And there was a Britney Spears concert. And, you know, the, the, I was, because I had the, the, one of the main stories, I was sitting in a corner in the meeting room of all the editors, you know, and conference call with the publisher and stuff. And the pollsters say, nobody wants to read about, about, uh, police suicides, Britney Spears all across the front page, you know, and, 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 and I, and my reaction to that was, well, if, you know, if that's where we're going with this, let, let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's just, let's just publish hardcore porn on the front of the paper, you know, because that's what apparently a lot of people really want. So let's just, let's just cut right to the chase. You'll sell a lot more papers if that's what's on the front page. And I, I, so that was me ripping the bandage off from my, of my own eyes on that. Unfortunately, to their detriment, newspaper companies continued to try to, to tell themselves they were providing one thing while they were doing another thing. And they went, most of them went out of business in the United States as a result. Yeah. And it goes back to that noise level of 11 that you mentioned, where everyone's just trying to shout over one another to be heard. And again, you, you think that the responsibility of the, of the news broadcasting media is to present a, a neutral, unbiased view of the world, but they're still a business. Yeah. And they're still a money-making industry. And as you've just indicated, it's what sells is what they print. So how do we filter 
and how do we process and how do we pause to reflect on what really matters when we are receiving information that doesn't necessarily matter? Oh, I love that question, Amy. And you answered you answered it with the very first word you said, which is filter. We have to be our own filter rather than just saying, you know, you know, I, I, I'm not going to try to pick the, the UK uh, news outlets because I don't know them well enough, but you know, in the US rather than saying, you know, I, I, I lean to the left, so I'm going to watch, you know, MSNBC or I lean to the right. So I'm going to watch Fox and that's all I'm going to watch to, 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 to not let other people decide what to show you and what you consume, to think about what you're interested in, and then to, it's very easy to go online and, and look at multiple sources of information and see what they have to say. And whenever there's something that's controversial, I try to look at you know the different sides of that controversy to see what they have to say about it so that I'm the one who's choosing what I consume rather than letting an algorithm or letting you know, a, a, a news outlet, a news station or, an, or a newspaper that has, as you pointed out, a profit agenda drive what I see. And there's nothing wrong with having a profit agenda. I, you know, I have no problem with, with newspapers making money. It's just that when, when, they, when they try to portray themselves as, this is the lie we tell ourselves, you know, that it, it is, well, you, you, you've got me going, going into a deep place here that I haven't been in a long time since I quit journalism. But, you know, I, I will just, just say that, you know, when I became a journalist back in the early 1990s, being a journalist was still viewed almost as like a priesthood. You, you took a vow of poverty. You knew you weren't going to make a ton of money, but you were willing to do it because you were going to, to be the eyes of the people you were going to be shining a light into the dark places of the world, what, you know, whatever, choose your metaphor, you know, choose your, choose your slogan that they, that they used to uh, tout. But, you know, by the time I left journalism, I quit uh, my last job at the end of 2013. It was really all about who could post something on Twitter first. And it didn't matter if it was true or false. And I'm not saying there's not good journalism out there because there's a lot of good journalism out there, but as organizations, there are few organizations that are really committed to doing that job that they say that they're committed to. And much, many, many more organizations that are going back to the analogy that you used early on, which I think is very apt, of basically using the psychology of, of casinos to keep people engaged, to keep people coming back for more with flashing lights and, and, and sensational headlines. I mean, it's like, you know, my gosh, you know, like you, you, you read some of the headlines. I'm not going to pick on a particular British paper. I do read a lot of British papers. You, you, you read some of the headlines and, and you think the world's coming to an end. And then you read the story and it doesn't even say anything remotely like what, what the headline says. And, and that's the, that's the casino psychology. That's the bell and ding, 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 you know, jackpot, jackpot, you know, and you turns out you won, you know, $3, you know, or three pounds, you know. And it's that it's playing on that dopamine fix or that stress, those stress functions in our body that gets people, oh my gosh, I better read this because it's so terrifying. And things used to be a lot calmer, a lot more just, just the facts, you know, type of thing. And people were able to, to think more clearly without all that noise. Sorry, I, you, you've, you, you touched an old nerve. <laughs> oh, I'm very glad to do so. I think it's great. I, I, how do you live with purpose in the 21st century when 
look, there's so much to filter. We don't have the time to filter everything. So how do we live a purpose-driven life? Well, it's a good question. I mean, for me, I've been very fortunate because I've been able to create a company that that is all focused on achieving the purpose that's 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 most important to me. So when I get up every morning, before I even out, get out of bed and I'm looking at my cell phone, my phone and looking at the emails I've gotten and the messages, I, I'm already working on the thing that's most important to me. I feel and and that's what I do all day. But it's but you know, I spent I spent a lot of years between the time I realized that that the job I was doing as a journalist wasn't what I thought it was and the day I quit struggling with that question because because it's 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 hard to to go get up and go to work every day and be part of something that you don't believe in that you're just doing for a paycheck and I think that the solution I think the answer is something that the US Army discovered when they were developing red team actually. So the U.S. Army loves to use psychology and psychologists. They have a lot of psychologists. And when, when, when I was going through the, this, this months long red team leader course, constantly, we had a bunch of psychology assessments through the whole thing to help us understand how we thought in our decision, our decision-making process. So many, several years before I was at the school, when it was first stood up, they noticed something, the psychologists noticed something, which is the officers that were going through the course were every week were more and more enthusiastic about this new concept of red teaming. And it was like they, they, you know, they plotted this huge upward incline. And then something happened in every class, which is in the last couple of weeks of the class, their enthusiasm started to plummet. And so they interviewed a lot of these officers to find out why. And I bet your listeners can guess what the answer is. It says, as people are getting close to graduation and starting to think about going back to their units, they were thinking about, wow, I've got all these amazing tools and techniques now to think more deeply about problems, to look at things more three-dimensionally, to, to help my unit understand and act more effectively. And I know exactly what's going to happen when I get back. And and that and that old gray-haired general who never wants to hear anything that he that doesn't confirm what he already believes, hears about this. He's just going to shut me down faster than 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 you could say, Jiminy Cricket. And that started to really undermine people's enthusiasm because they started to see, think about how am I going to actually use these tools and techniques in a in a in a organization that that is going to be resistant to them. And so the army put some organizational psychologists to work on this. And they came up with this concept that's very powerful. And it really goes to what what your the question you asked Amy. They called it my 15%. And it's based on this 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 finding from organizational psychology that in any organization whether it's the military, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a school in any organization, whether you are at the C-suite or the factory floor, you have at least 15% of your job, at least 15% of your job that, that, that you can directly impact that organization. There's at least 15% of what's around you that you can touch, that you can impact. Even if you're a janitor in a hospital, there are, there's things that you can do 
that lead to better health outcomes for people, for instance. And so the advice that, so the army started ending the program by spending a couple of days talking to students in the course about my 15%, they called it, which was if you go back to your organization and you find that senior leadership is resisting the use of these tools, they find that nobody wants you to red team the problems, don't get discouraged, don't get depressed, find your 15%. Find the 15% of the organization that you can make a positive change in and apply yourself to using these tools and techniques to making a positive change in that area. And if you do that, and everyone else in this class does that, you know, and the next class and the next class, you start to turn the ocean liner, even if the ocean liner doesn't want to turn. And so when you ask how to live a purpose-driven life, if, if you're not able to make that your full-time occupation, you can, you can express your purpose in the position you're in by finding your 15%. I really believe that. Absolutely. And and on a, a completely different level, I remember learning quite a lot about a particular area and then coming home and being really excited about it and thinking, I can share this with my family. They're going to really love it. And it's that whole like, whoa, back off. The energy is not what we want. <laughs> they weren't ready because I'd spent that time learning and understanding and processing, as you say earlier, just pausing and thinking. So instead of sort of forcing something on the family, it's just a case of, I'm just going to get on with it. I'm just going to do it. And it's going to filter through uh, osmosis, essentially. And then I start seeing those traits in the kids and it coming through. And you just think, yeah, that's the same with the organization from that perspective as well. So this whole way of learning, this whole red team thinking can be applied in your professional and in your personal life, can't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we tell all the people all the women and men who go through our courses, we, it, it, you know, at the end of our first course, we tell them, welcome to the insurgency. Because what we are creating is an intellectual insurgency that is spreading. As we speak around the world, people, I just finished a class with Marcus yesterday, 30 people from all over the world, from different companies, from different organizations, from different militaries. We're in this same class. And those people have, are now going out and I guarantee you that at least half of them right now are, are taking this red team thinking mindset and applying it in their organization. And we do this all the time. And so this spreads. And as those people spread, it becomes, like I say, a virtuous insurgency that is changing the way organizations think. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's amazing to see that happen. Because people want to do this. It goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, Amy. We were all born wanting to tell the truth, wanting to know why, wanting to think. It's what we did. It's, it's, I mean, that's, that's to be human is to think. Animals largely, you know, function in the world through, through, autumn, you know, through, through instinct and, and, and the way that they're hardwired. But human beings have this ability to use critical thinking. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And reclaiming that is so empowering for people. So empowering. And what I ask people to do when they listen to this podcast is to reflect on the key takeaways, to, to take something from this episode and apply it to their life. So don't just 
tune off and say, oh, that was interesting, and then just go about their day. It's to really think about how can I apply what I've just heard from Bryce today and just think of even if it's just one thing. So I want to say thank you because it's been a wonderful journey through Purpose of Red Team Thinking. So really enjoyed it. How would people get in contact with the business or you yourself? Well, first of all, thank you, Amy, for giving me the opportunity to share Red Team Thinking with your audience and to have this conversation and to reflect. I loved your questions. I loved reflecting about some of these very tough issues that I've grappled with in my life. So you can learn more about Red Team Thinking by simply going to redteamthinking.com. Easy peasy. You can also uh, follow me on on LinkedIn. I'm just Bryce Hoffman, um, forward slash Bryce Hoffman on LinkedIn. You can find me. And that is the only place you can find me, not on Facebook or any of these other places for the reasons we discussed. I think I do still have a Twitter account, but I rarely use it. Yeah. I hope people reach out. I love to talk to people, love to hear from them. Oh, and we have the Thinking Leader podcast too, which is available wherever podcasts are heard. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links go into the show notes. So thank you again, Bryce. It's been fascinating. Have you got some final words for the audience for me, please? Thank you, Amy. Yes. And it goes back to what I said. Think. You, each of you, were born to think. And it's easy to forget that it's easy to get lazy. It's easy to get busy, but it's so powerful when you reclaim that role of being a thinking person, a thinking leader, and it's so effective. And if you reclaim that role, you will, I promise you, you'll accelerate ahead of those around you, whatever you're doing, because too many people aren't thinking. So think and don't stop asking why. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.